Well, good morning, everyone. I'm going to go ahead and open us with a word of prayer. So let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day that we can gather to worship you. Lord, we thank you for your word, which is precious to us. Lord, it was your word that opened our eyes to our sinfulness and the preaching of your word that caused us to hear the gospel. And Lord, ultimately, it was your spirit working through your word that brought us to salvation. Lord, we thank you that Christ died for us. We thank you for the profound and deep teaching of Pastor Steve this morning that can be challenging to understand, Lord, but is consistent with your truth. So I pray that as we are here and faith builders, that you will open our ears to hear from the text that we'll study that was written by Peter, by the power of your spirit. I pray that you'll help me to convey it clearly, and I pray that you will help us have ears to hear and be quick to apply it to our lives. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to be back with you. I had a a brief detour. I was supposed to be teaching last week, and a week ago Thursday, I got sick very quickly, and I was sick through the weekend, but thankfully I am recovered. And so, Today, I'm going to tell you what you should have heard last week, but in God's providence, you didn't. So, if you'll turn in your Bibles, we are in the middle of a section of 2 Peter, which really is going to complete chapter 1, and we are going to finish it today. And it's a section that really begins the transition into the heart of what Peter is talking about. Now, we began covering these verses two weeks ago, but really... What's happening now is Peter is turning his attention to what is driving this letter, which are the false teachers that are affecting the church. In fact, when we begin, Lord willing, next week with chapter 2, the opening verses of chapter 2 make it very clear Peter is dealing with false teachers. Now, his overarching goal, I think, in everything he writes, which would be the same for every New Testament author and every Old Testament author, is that we should be holy as God is holy. As God's children, He saved us. He calls us to live holy lives. That was absolutely the motivation of First Peter. But First Peter was written in the context of the injustices and hardships of life. Be it persecution or just in general, this sin-filled world is not fair. How should believers respond? And of course, the issue is holiness. It's just how do you get there in an unjust world? That's what the whole book was about. In this letter, Second Peter, I think the focus is the same. He wants us to be holy as God is holy. But the context and the struggle here is the issue of false teachers in the church that cause problems. Again, we'll be studying it next week, but Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So this is really the focus of chapter 2 and chapter 3 of this letter. And I keep referencing chapters. Understand, of course, when this letter was originally written, there weren't chapters. It was just a flow. The chapters were added in layer. But for our purposes in our discussion, the very end of chapter 1 is setting the stage for everything that follows. And as we talked last time, really, if, if I could summarize it, and I think it's even more clear after studying and restudying for what we're teaching today, the issue is how can you tell truth from error? There are a lot of people saying a lot of things. 
If you go on the internet, and of course they didn't have the internet at this time, but in our day it's the same thing. You go on the internet, you see countless people saying a lot of things about Jesus. The vast majority of them are wrong. <laughs> and it's heresy. Destructive heresies brought in by false teachers motivated by Satan who disguises himself as an angel of light such that his servant disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness. All that's according to the scriptures. So how do we as believers know who to listen to? How do we know the difference between truth and error? And that's really what Peter is addressing in these last few verses of chapter 1. So follow along with me. I'm going to read verses 16 through 21. And the last time we talked, verses 16 to 18, so I'm going to summarize that very quickly. And today we're going to finish by covering verses 19 to 21. But follow along. I'll read the entire thing for context. Verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So as I outlined this two weeks ago, it really was two facts validating the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when distinguishing truth from error, how do we know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true? And Peter sets forth two principles, two facts that validate the truth of the gospel. And the first is the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. Again, I'm going to briefly fly through this because this is what we covered before. But Peter began in verse 16 with a negative saying, look, we're not inventing myths Cleverly devised tales are just another way, and some translations translate it myths. It's just human stories that are made up about gods or so-called gods or heroes. In the context of the Roman system, they certainly had countless gods. I mentioned, at least when I was in school, and I'm sure for most of you will be the case, we studied Greek mythology, and it was always confusing because Roman mythology was the same as Greek mythology. They just switched up all the names and you can't figure out who's who. But the reality is, the Roman gods would have been very prevalent and people knew what was going on. And Peter is saying, look, that's not what we're telling you. When we're telling you about Jesus Christ in the context, he's talking about the coming return of Jesus Christ, the reason, the need to live in light of the return of Christ. He's saying, look, we're not making up stories. These aren't myths. We saw it. And he's specifically referring to the event that we refer to as the transfiguration of Jesus. We refer to it that way because that's what the scriptures say. When the three apostles, James and John and Peter, had the unique privilege and honor of being with Jesus on the mountain when Jesus for a moment was seen in his full glory. He shone brightly. His clothes were bright. Moses and Elijah were standing there. And again, we covered all this. It's, it's recounted in three of the Gospels, but it's also alluded to in the Gospel of John. We beheld his glory. And the reality is, Peter is saying, look, we were there. 
unlike all the false teachers that he's going to start talking about in chapter 2, unlike them, they're just making up stories about their heroes and they're making up myths about their so-called gods. He said, that's not what we're doing. We're telling you the truth. We were there. We saw it. They saw what happened and they heard it with their own ears. Again, he's alluding to the future return of Christ, the fact that Jesus will come again one day. I won't read it, but it's not like the first coming where Jesus came as a humble servant and a humble baby. This is when he'll come in glory. I read Matthew 24, 29, and 30 that talks about him coming on the clouds and its power and great glory. And Peter is saying, look, we are telling you that's going to occur, and it's the truth, and the reason we know it's the truth is because we've already seen Jesus in his glory. We were there on the mountain. We heard the God, the Father, talk about him. So he's saying, look, we're not making up stories. This isn't just something we created out of thin air. That's what the false teachers are doing. And he's already preparing for an argument he's going to make in chapter 3. He's addressing a specific false teaching, a specific destructive heresy that basically said, look, don't bother worrying about Jesus coming back. He isn't coming back. So, for example, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Peter said, know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. In other words, some false teachers are going to say, don't worry about Jesus coming back. Does it look like he's come back? Everything keeps going. Don't worry about that. Live for the here and now. And Peter's saying, look, he is coming back. We've seen his glory. We know it's true. You can believe us. So that's a quick, quick, quick review of everything we talked about last time. But that leads us to the second fact validating the truth of the gospel. The first is the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. The second is the God-breathed testimony of Scripture. The God-breathed testimony of Scripture. I'm going to read again verses 19 to 21 because this is where we're going to be camped out today. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, these are just three verses in our English Bibles. But I can tell you that we could spend weeks here talking about deep theology. We're not going to. We're going to talk about it today. But books have been written and treatises have been published on the profound truths that are here. And rather than go down every side road, which I would enjoy doing, I'm just going to try and keep the focus on the main thing so that we can keep moving. But again, we have to remember that all of this has to do with the trustworthiness of the testimony of Jesus Christ. So on the one hand... These are profound scriptures. They're dealing with the nature of scripture. And they're dealing with divine inspiration and the way that the Bible came into existence and the way that God works to reveal his will to us through his word. 
And unfortunately, because of the challenges of the Greek language and because of translations into English, there are some differing interpretations on these things that if you read the commentaries, you can see that all kinds of things happen all over the place. But the reality is, I think if we pay close attention and if we work really hard, we can see that Peter's making a basic point that we shouldn't miss. And there's an explanation which makes sense of all of this regardless of the various commentaries and the various controversies. So again, we have to remember the context. I just read 2 Peter, the beginning of chapter 2. He's going to start talking about false teachers. And what he's doing here is he's making clear, just as he said, our eyewitness testimony is different from them. He's saying there's another source of authority that refutes everything you'll hear from the false teachers. And that source is the Word of God. Again, if you look at the beginning of the letter, he's already talked about the precious and magnificent promises that we have. We've been granted all things for life and godliness including the precious promises of God. And that's ultimately what's in focus here, although we'll have to walk through it a little bit carefully, and I'll read some other versions, because I think we can bring together what it means, despite the language that in English, depending on which version you could use, might be a little bit confusing. So he starts at the beginning of verse 19. He says, so we have the prophetic word made sure. And there's a couple of things I'll just point out quickly. One, he was just talking about we, meaning the apostles. And when he gets to verse 19, we transitions. He's not talking about we, meaning the three apostles have this. Now he's talking about all believers. This is something all of us have. We, all of us, have the prophetic word made sure. And when he says prophetic word, he's not just talking solely about scriptures. That's just a reference and a way to talk about the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, in all likelihood in the context, it's talking about all scriptures because later Peter will acknowledge that Paul was writing scriptures. But the prophetic word is just a reference to the God-inspired scriptures. And he says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. And again, so is tying it back into what he just said. We were eyewitnesses. We saw this. We heard this. So we have the prophetic word made sure. And he's tying the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, what they saw, into the reality of the word of God, and he's drawing a connection, and he's putting them both together to say this is truth as over and against the false teachers who are just purveying myths. And I think if you have a version like the ESV, it makes the connector, it's the same word in Greek, but it makes the connector a little bit different. Verse 19 begins with the word and, which is, I think, more likely accurate. In other words, we have the eyewitness testimony of the apostles and we have the prophetic word. So here's his argument. He's just told them that the teaching of the apostles about Jesus Christ and his glorious return, it's not a fairy tale, it's real, it's going to happen. We were there, we saw it, it's not a myth. And he's saying, not only do you have our eyewitness testimony, but you have something even greater than our eyewitness testimony. You have the scriptures. You have the word of God. 
Again, the phrasing in English is a little confusing in the version I use. It's not wrong. It's not incorrect. It just conveys a different idea. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. When I say it conveys a different idea, it's just not a clear idea. Let me say it that way. But if you look at a couple of other versions, particularly this is one of the times where the NIV, I think, is an accurate summary of what it means. The NIV says, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And I do believe that's exactly what Peter is conveying. He's saying, we don't just have our eyewitness testimony, which is true and valid and reliable, and you should bank on it, because we were there, and we saw and we heard, but you also have the scriptures that testify to these exact same things. Yes, the apostolic witness of the transfiguration proves without a doubt that what we've taught about Christ and his return is true. You can bank on it. You can believe it. But you don't just have to take our word for it. Take God's word for it. You have the prophetic word. You have the holy scriptures that are reliable. They're telling you the same thing. And then he connects it and he shows us how we should be interacting with this prophetic word. He says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. To which you do well to pay attention. In other words, you have in your possession the scriptures, pay attention to them, take heed of them, study them, read them. In a sense, he's telling them to be Bereans. If you remember the account, The Apostle Paul went and preached and the Bereans were more righteous because they examined the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Peter's saying, yes, that's what you should do. You do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And in this context, a dark place is just dealing with the reality that the world in which we live is a dark, sin-filled Dirty place. It is. By God's grace, we have the hope of heaven. We live and we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness. But the reality is, until God takes us to heaven, everything around us is dark and dirty spiritually. Dark describes sin, a sin-filled place. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6.12 in talking about spiritual warfare made the same type of reference. Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces. Those are all demonic. Of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. I alluded to it, but in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, Paul describes our salvation in those terms. For he rescued us, Jesus, from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom as beloved son. So in one sense, we're out of the darkness because we've been rescued from the domain of darkness. We're no longer in that kingdom, but that kingdom's all around us. We still are faced with it. And while we've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, we live out our life until the return of Christ to remove the church or until we die, we live in this dark place. And he's saying, look, as long as you're here, you need to pay attention to the scriptures. 
In this dark world, the word of God is the only thing that can bring light. Both in terms of our own walk with the Lord, but also in terms of our impact and our testimony to the dying world. This is the consistent testimony of Scripture. You see it over and over again, dark and light, dark and light. And the Word of God is central to pointing out light. On a personal level of walking in obedience, Psalm 119, 105, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. When the Apostle John describes Jesus in those Profound words opening his gospel. The first five verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Very familiar words. Verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. Speaking of the times that we live in, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And obviously Jesus wasn't talking literally about the difference between walking around in the daylight or the darkness, but that's the spiritual reality. 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. All of these verses affirm the theology and the truth that undergirds Peter's exhortation to all of us that we do well. It's a good thing. It's a necessary thing for us to pay attention to the word. The prophetic word brings light into the dark places. We need the light of God and the light of his word to shine forth in these dark times. Not only so that we know how to walk and navigate, but also so that we are a light to the darkness so that some will come to faith because of our proclamation of the truth and the witness of our own lives. And Peter makes it clear this is not a Sunday responsibility. This is an all-of-your-life responsibility. When you come to faith in Christ... You would do well to pay attention to the prophetic word for the rest of your life. He expresses it in a, in a slightly different way, but he's talking about the second coming of Christ. So we have the prophetic word made sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, again, he's not talking about a literal day in the context. Well, I guess he is talking about a literal day, but he doesn't mean when the sun comes up tomorrow. What he's talking about is that moment in time when Jesus Christ returns. Paul describes something similar in Romans 13, 11, and 12. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. This is just talking about the reality of the imminent return of Christ to take away his church. Now, I in no way am going to go down a side road and talk about all of biblical prophecy, but what the scriptures teach 
is that at one point, and we don't know when, it could be today. I wish it would be today. Jesus Christ is going to return, and all believers who are on the earth are going to be taken up with him in the air. It's described in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. It's just talking about the resurrected bodies of those who are already died. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. So there's going to come the time when Jesus is going to come back, there's going to be the shout, and there's going to be the trumpet, and all of his children are going to come up with him. That's when the day is dawning. And Peter's just saying, look, until that day comes, in which case it either is going to come while we're alive or it's not going to come, in which case all of this about the prophetic word is something we do until we die. Pay attention. Take heed. Study. Learn. This is the light in the dark world in which you occupy. He says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. There's a lot of discussion about this. But from Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, the morning star is Jesus. And he's saying, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, that doesn't mean it's a subjective thing only for me, but it does mean that we will all experience the full reality of what we've been waiting on when Christ returns. Revelation twenty two sixteen says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Peter's just using that imagery and saying, look, when Christ returns, everything is going to be there. So until that day, until you experience the fullness in your own hearts of recognizing the hope is a reality, your faith is becoming sight, until that day, study the scriptures. Study, pay attention, take heed. Again, he's pointing towards the future because one of the false teachers' doctrines, those destructive heresies, was this idea of Jesus is never coming back. Yeah, you've heard about him coming back. I've already read 2 Peter 3, 3 and 4. But hey, everything keeps going on. It's all the same. Peter's saying, look, the word is true. The prophetic word, the scriptures are true. Pay attention to them. Study them. This is the light you need in the darkness. And until the Lord comes, you camp out there. You remain there. You continue to study. He says, not only does eyewitness testimony prove that this is going to happen, be ready, be on the alert, just like the scriptures say, but he says the prophetic word makes it clear. It also teaches the exact same thing. Now, What's interesting is Peter now will set forth some profound theology that really answers a lot of questions from somebody who asks, where's the Bible come from? And it should be something that all believers know, but I can tell you they don't. But Peter is going to talk about profound theology, but he's going to do it not for the purposes of writing a book on the inspiration of Scripture. He's doing it just to simply encourage his children, look, you can believe the Scriptures. They're true. And so he would say the same thing to us today. You can believe the scriptures, they're true. And so he's going to provide an explanation that has a lot of truth. It establishes a great contrast with the false teachers. It should, get every, it should give every believer confidence 
to rest in the word of God, to believe your Bible that you have in your hand. And while the English translations are varied, and again, that's just the nature of life, the underlying meaning, I think, is understandable with a little clarification and with a little bit of work. So follow along. I'm going to read verses 20 and 21. These are critical verses for our confidence and for our refutation of all false teachers. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now verse 20 begins with this phrase, but know this first of all. In other words, this is a point of emphasis. Again, remember the context. How can you discern truth from error? There are false teachers everywhere. And Peter is saying, look, in this ongoing effort to have confidence in the truth, to believe the truth, to distinguish truth from error, know this first of all. Put, put this at the front of the list. This is critical for why you can believe the prophetic word. This is why you can believe the scriptures. Put this right up front when you're thinking about God's word. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Now here's where things are interesting. This is of first importance. It's of great importance, and then believing teachers disagree on what's next. And the way some English translations phrase it, it looks like one thing. The way other English translations, it looks like another. And if you read the commentaries... It could run you in circles. But I don't believe there should be confusion because I do believe the meaning is evident once you understand the context. He says, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture. Now again, he's talking about the prophetic word. He's not just talking about those that are actual predictive of the future. He's just talking about Scripture in general. But he says... No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. And this is where I think the translation is not inaccurate. It just can convey something that isn't intended by the text. He says, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Now, that sounds like it could be saying, if we just read that and didn't have anything else, that this is dealing with how do we understand what the Word of God says. How do we know what it means? But if you look at the ESV, that same section, 2 Peter verse one twenty, it says something slightly different. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now, is a matter of one's own interpretation sounds like you're talking about deciding what it means, but if you say it comes from, suddenly it looks like it's talking about the source of a prophecy. The NIV goes a little bit further. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. And I think when you get to that, that is actually what Peter is talking about. And I believe he talks about that because of what he says in verse 21 in the overall context of the argument he's making. But those differences point out the two main views of this. And I don't normally like to do this, but it's very important in the culture in which we live. So if you look at this and say, no prophecy is a matter of one's own interpretation, some people have taken that and said, see, you can't really understand the Bible yourself. 
you've got to go to the church to find out the meaning of the Bible. In fact, that's why there was a Reformation. Because the Catholic Church says, we decide what's in the Scriptures. It's not a matter of one's own interpretation. You don't read it yourself. We, we'll help you. If you look back in church history, why did some people get martyred for translating the Bible? Because the church didn't want people to have the Bible. My goodness, people might think that they could understand it on their own. In no way is Peter affirming some type of Catholic doctrine and saying, look, you can't really understand the Bible on your own, so only go to church and listen to what the church says. If you read through these explanations, there's a lot of discussion in the commentaries about the technical things of Greek. And I went to seminary, and these things still, in many respects, they can go over your head because they're so technical and they're so side all over the place. But if you stop and you get past that and you understand the context, again, I don't think it should be so hard to understand. I don't believe Peter is talking about how we interpret the Scriptures. I don't believe he's teaching some kind of Catholic doctrine that says, look, only the church decides what Scripture means. It's not a matter of what you think. The context is everything. So now think about this way. And this is, in some respects, it's logic. Maybe it's the lawyer side of me thinking this way. But Peter is just telling them, you have the precious and magnificent promises of God back in verse 4 of chapter 1. Then he just says, and you have the prophetic word made sure to which you do well. Pay attention. Take heed. It would be an odd thing for him to say after saying, you've got these beautiful, precious promises, but you can't understand them, so don't read them. Nope, nope, can't do it. Got to go live somewhere else. That's not it at all. Rather, I think what he's doing here is he's talking about the source. So not what does the Bible mean, but where does the Bible come from? So he knows that false teachers are everywhere. That's all the teaching of the New Testament. And what Peter is saying is that a prophet is not a free agent. You have the prophetic word made sure, and one of the ways you can have confidence in it is because no prophecy came about just because the prophet decided, I think I'm going to write something today. That's why I think the NIV is accurate. The other translations are not inaccurate. But I think from an English standpoint, our understanding, the NIV conveys it better when it says, no prophecy scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. So what Peter is saying, and I believe what he's conveying to us, is that when you go to the prophetic word, when you go to the word of God, you can have confidence that this isn't just the musings of whatever person decided to write that day. The false teachers think of something in their own mind, they follow after their own desires and lusts, and they just blurt it out, and it's a myth, and it's a fairy tale. He's saying, that's not how the scriptures came about. No prophecy came about because the prophet decided, or the writer decided, I think I'm going to say something. I've got an opinion. Let me tell you what that opinion is. That's the issues. Peter's talking about the source of scripture, where does it come from? And he's saying it doesn't come from the mind of man. Unlike the false teachers who are just spewing whatever they think of at that moment, in part, they're tickling ears, they're seeing what does the crowd want to hear. 
He's saying that's not how the scriptures came about. It's not by the prophet's own interpretation of things. And the reason why I think it's so clear that that's the meaning of verse 20 is because of verse 21. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. That's the issue. That's the tie-in. Again, he's not talking about how do you interpret the scriptures. He's saying, how do you know the scriptures are true? You know they're true because they don't come about by the thinking of sinful men. No prophecy, meaning no word of scripture was ever made. It was never put down by an act of human will. Again, this could not be a bigger contrast with the false teachers who were just thinking up things to say. Couldn't be more emphatic. No prophecy, not one, never, ever was made because a human being decided, I think I'm going to write down something. That's not it at all. Now, I'm going to clarify something in a moment about the human involvement in the writing of Scripture. But the focus of this verse, I believe, is plain and emphatic, and it's critically important in the day and age in which we live. It's a simple saying, but I can tell you, you can bank your life on the words here. So Peter's making a contrast. And again, I'm going to come back to banking your life on this, but Peter's making a contrast. And again, he's dealing with people that they're being bombarded. They got teaching coming at them, and he's saying, look, cling to the word. The word isn't human It's not just the thinkings of men. I think Peter is alluding to something that was talked about in the Old Testament in many occasions. But for example, in Jeremiah 23, verse 16, the Lord was rebuking false teachers. Jeremiah 23, 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. That's it. That's a description of the false teachers that Peter's about to rebuke. That's what's happening all around us today. How can someone stand up in a pulpit and tell you that God is absolutely okay with transgenderism? How can they stand in the pulpit and perform a ceremony marrying a man and a man given the clear prohibitions of Scripture? Because they're speaking from their own imaginations. They're leading the church that listens to them into futility. They're not speaking from the mouth of the Lord. They're speaking what is in their own imagination. And it's happening on issue after issue throughout the church. I think Peter's words are more relevant today than I I can even express. This is a minor side road and I'm going to run over a few minutes. Forgive me. But one of the things that you'll find that's interesting is most of the people who study the Bible don't believe the Bible. Nowadays, everything's on the internet, but when I started seminary in 2000, we still went to the seminary library. They had thousands of volumes on the campus of Grace Community Church, which is where the seminary building was. And we did research projects, and you'd have to research depending on what topic you're in. And there were thousands of volumes of books written. 
Some of them were detailed commentaries about the Old Testament. Some were detailed commentaries about the New Testament. Some were theological works. And what was fascinating to me, the vast majority of them were written by unbelievers that don't believe the Bible at all. It could be a frustrating thing because you could know in the introduction to a book whether somebody believed or not. And let me tell you what is universal. All of those unbelievers writing about the Bible believed that it was just written by men who decided to put something on paper. They, they don't believe for a second that it's a supernatural book. They don't believe for a second that God had anything to do with it. So they approach the book trying to figure out what would cause that man to do that. You can imagine if you thought Steve Kreloff was just saying what Steve Kreloff wants to say and so they would start dissecting his life. Why would he say that? Was it because he grew up in Brooklyn? Was it because he runs marathons? Is that why he said that? Is it because he has a son and two daughters and not two two sons and a daughter? It's foolishness. It's pointless. It does not get you anywhere in terms of what did God actually say, but the entirety of scholarship in those circles presents the Bible as just another book of the imaginations of men. And here's what's sad. Most pastors, it wouldn't surprise me if most pastors believe those writers more than they believe the apostle Peter. They approach the Bible as though it's just a book. It's not divine. It's just a book. But Peter tells us, don't ever even entertain that thought, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Again, there are books written on everything I've said so far on this. This is the doctrine of inspiration. This is the crux of why Peter says, you have the prophetic word made sure. Pay attention to it. It doesn't come from the imagination of men. It's not made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Again, God used human authors. It's interesting because God with his finger could write the Ten Commandments, the original. God, we understand, he's God. He could speak the Bible into existence and it would appear exactly as it is. He could have done that, but he didn't. He used fallible men to write the scripture. And what Peter is telling us is how he used those men. But men, and they were men, and they did speak. They were writing down the scriptures. They weren't robots. God used them as he found them. So, for example, Moses had his life experiences growing up in Pharaoh's palace and 40 years in the desert and then at 80 taking over the men. All those things go into the writing of Scripture, but Moses, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And that's the case with every word written in Scripture. The language here is picturesque. It has the idea of a sailing vessel. And if you have a boat out on the ocean and it doesn't have a motor, how does it get anywhere? You put up the sail and when the wind blows, it carries it. That's the language used in the original text. And he's basically saying men, men used by God, basically opened up their sails and were willing to be used by God. And God, through the Holy Spirit, carried them to where they wanted to go. Such that they penned the exact words that God wanted them to write. 
Paul speaks of this very thing, 2 Timothy 3.16, a very familiar verse. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All scripture is inspired by God. It means literally God breathed. In other words, the picture is that God, through his Holy Spirit, provided the words, provided the motivation Yes, they still use their background and their humanity, but not a single word was because they decided, I think I'll put this in here. So when Peter was writing this letter, chapter 1, written by the Holy Spirit, chapter 2, written by the Holy Spirit, chapter 3, Peter says, well, I think I'll add in my own thoughts. No, that never happened. Didn't happen with any of Scripture. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So let me try and wrap this together. These are deep thoughts. I struggled to crystallize it so that I could condense it and make sure that it made sense, and I hope I have. But in a world filled with false teachers, and in a dark world, there's only true guidance, which is from the Word of God. In the first century church, the eyewitness testimony of the apostles could validate the truth. So Peter said, we were eyewitnesses. We're not making it up. And then he says, but you have the scriptures. It's not just our word for it. You have the scriptures of God and none of them came about because people were imagining things. God himself through his Holy Spirit caused these men to speak these things. You can trust in them and true. And in our day and age, removed from the time of the apostles, they're one and the same thing. Because the eyewitness testimony of the apostles is in the scriptures such that they're now part of the prophetic word, such that we can believe all of it as true because every single word of the Bible in front of you isn't the product of what men thought up. But the Holy Spirit moved these men and they were speaking the words of God and we can believe them and we can trust in them. So in our world, when everything around us is preaching a different gospel when there are countless teachers who are very winsome and and articulate and they seem intelligent and they're telling you something that contradicts Scripture, you can always come back and pay attention to the Word of God because it will not steer you wrong and that's the way you validate truth. What did God say? So let me close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I have a great fear that I can't do justice to the depth of the truth of your word. So I pray that your spirit would do what I can't do in my humanity. Lord, I pray that my brothers and sisters would believe your word. They would have confidence in your word. That they would pay attention to your word daily as we live in this dark place. And Lord, I pray that they would use your word to test every truth claim. Every person who speaks and says, thus saith the Lord, I pray that my brothers and sisters would go to your word like the Bereans who were commended by Paul and they would examine the scriptures to see if these things were so because the scriptures and the scriptures alone are the words that you cause men to write through your Holy Spirit breathing through them. Lord, give us confidence and hope in you in these dark, dark times. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.